Abolition. 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 I do not wish to appear here in any fault-finding spirit or as an impugner of the motives of those who believe that the time has come for this society to disband. I am conscious of no suspicion of the purity and excellence of the motives that animate the president of this society, Mr. William Lloyd Garrison, and other gentlemen who are in favor of its disbandment. I take this ground. Whether this constitutional amendment, the 13th, is law or not, whether it has been ratified by a sufficient number of states to make it law or not. I hold that the work of the abolitionists is not done. Even if every state in the Union had ratified that amendment while the black man is confronted in the legislation of the South by the word white, our work as abolitionists, as I conceive it, is not done. I took the ground last night that the South, by unfriendly legislation, could make our liberty under that provision a delusion a mockery and a snare, and I hold that ground now. What advantage is a provision like this amendment to the black man if the legislator of any state can tomorrow declare that no black man's testimony shall be received in the court of law? Where are we then? Any wretch may enter the house of a black man and commit any violence he pleases. If he happens to do it only in the presence of black persons, he goes unwhipped of justice. And don't tell me that those people down there have become so just and honest all at once that they will not pass laws denying to black men the right to testify against white men in the courts of law. Why, our northern states have done it. Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio have done it. Here, in the midst of institutions that have gone forth from old Plymouth Rock, the black man has been excluded from testifying in the courts of law. And if the legislator of every southern state tomorrow pass a law declaring that no Negro shall testify in any courts of law, they will not violate that provision of the Constitution. Such laws exist now at the South, and they might exist under this provision of the Constitution that there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in any state of the Union. Slavery is not abolished until the black man has the ballot. While the legislators of the South retain the right to pass laws making any discrimination between black and white, slavery still lives there. As Edmund Quincy once said, while the word white is on the statute book of Massachusetts, Massachusetts is a slave state. While a black man can be turned out of a car in Massachusetts, Massachusetts is a slave state. While a slave can be taken from old Massachusetts, Massachusetts is a slave state. That is what I heard Edmund Quincy say 23 or 24 years ago. I never forget such a thing. Now, while the black man can be denied a vote, while the legislators of the South can take from him the right to keep and bear arms as they can, they would not allow a Negro to walk with a cane where I came from. They would not allow five of them to assemble together. The work of the abolitionists is not finished, notwithstanding the provision in the Constitution of the United States that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be abridged, the black man has never had the right either to keep or bear arms, and the legislators of the states will still have the power to forbid it under this amendment. They can carry on a system of unfriendly legislation, and will they not do it? Have they not got prejudice, prejudice there to do it with? 
thank you that because they are for the moment in the talons and beak of our glorious eagle instead of the slave being there as formerly that they are converted, I hear of the loyalty at Wilmington, the loyalty of South Carolina. What is it worth? Not a straw. They are loyal while they see 200,000 sable soldiers with glistening bayonets walking in their midst. But let the civil power of the South be restored and the old prejudices and hostility to the Negro will revive. Aye, the very fact that the Negro has been used to defeat this rebellion and strike down the standards of the Confederacy will be a stimulus to all their hatred, to all their malice, and lead them to legislate with greater stringency toward this class than ever before. The American people are bound by their sense of honor. I hope by their sense of honor, at least by a just sense of honor, to extend the franchise to the Negro. And I was going to say that the abolitionists of the American Anti-Slavery Society were bound to stand still and see the salvation of God until that work is done. Where shall the black man look for support, my friends, if the American Anti-Slavery Society fails him? From whence shall we expect a certain sound from the trumpet of freedom when the old pioneer, when this society that has survived mobs and martyrdom and the combined efforts of priestcraft and statecraft to suppress it shall all at once subside on the mere intimation that the Constitution has been amended, so that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall hereafter be allowed in this land? What did the slaveholders of Richmond say? to those who objected to arming the Negro on the grounds that it would make him a freeman. Why, they said, the argument is absurd. We may make these Negroes fight for us, but while we retain the political power of the South, we can keep them in their subordinate positions. That was the argument, and they were right. They might have employed the Negro to fight for him. And while they retained in their hands power to exclude him from the political rights, they could have reduced him to a condition similar to slavery. Of course, they would not call it slavery, but some other name. Slavery has been fruitful in giving itself names. It has been called the peculiar institution, the social system, and the impediment, as it was called by the General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church. It has been called by a great many names, and it will call itself by yet another name. And you and I and all of us had better wait and see what new form this old monster will assume and what new skin this old snake will come forth. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Today. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. What men want and what they will, working for a dollar bill. Sad to see the old slave mill, grinding slow but grinding still. Walking home, a youth gets killed, police free to shoot at will. Sad to see the old slave mill, grinding slow but grinding still. Nine to five, you know the drill. Weekends are a short-lived thrill. Sad to see the old slave mill, grinding slow but grinding still. Cover on it over till it's filled. Take until they've had their fill. 
sure hurts to see the old slave mill. <laughs> grinding slow but grinding still. Grinding A new pattern of oppression replacing the old slave system was growing up in the South. The plantation owners, shorn of their source of power by emancipation, devised new methods of reducing the freedman to a state of peonage that would keep him bound hand and foot to the plantation. Terrorist societies, such as the Ku Klux Klan, swept down upon Negroes who dared to protest the violation of their rights. Any Negro community which sought to defend its civil liberties soon found its churches and schools a smoking shambles. Soon, as a result of this terror, the constitutional amendments adopted after the Civil War became little better than a mockery of freedom. When I met delegates at Negro conventions who had lived through the horrors of seeing their families massacred, their churches and schools burned to the ground, and their homes left in smoke and ruins, I realized the ridiculousness of the contention that my work was over. Constitutional amendments guaranteeing the Negro equality and fair play looked very well in print, I reminded my friends. But law on the statute book and law and the practice of the nation are two very different things and sometimes very opposite things. What were the 14th and 15th amendments worth to the victims of the Klan terror? What did the ballot mean to men reduced to a state of peonage? At the South, I argued in speech after speech, the Negro dependent upon his enemy for his daily bread cannot long vote or act contrary to the will of those to whom he must necessarily look for food and raiment which he must have. It is a grand thing to have rights secured by constitutional provisions and by legal enactments, but without a public opinion and the government to enforce them, they are a mockery. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. To those who called for a halt to agitation on the Negro question, I replied, we certainly hope that the time will come when the colored man in America shall cease to require the special efforts to guard these rights and advance their interests as a class. But that time has not yet come and is not even at the door. When the doors of nearly every workshop in the land are closed against the colored race and the highest callings open to them are of a menial character, while a colored gentleman is compelled to walk the streets of our large cities like New York unable to obtain admission to public hotels, while staterooms are refused in our steamboats and berths are refused in our sleeping cars on account of color, and the Negro is a byword and a hissing at every corner. The Negro is not abolished as a degraded caste, nor need his friends shut up shop and cease to make his advancement in the scale of civilized life a special work. Abolition. Once upon a time, a man got fucked. Now, how is that for a story? Because that's the story of black people in America. <laughs> you all don't know you black yet. 
You think you just people. Let me be the first to tell you that you are all black. The moment these dust motherfuckers set foot here and decided they white, and you get to be black, and that's the nice name they call you, let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the show. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves, split up, sold off, and worked to death. The lucky ones get Sunday off to sleep, fuck, and make most slaves and all for what? For cotton, indigo, for a fucking purple shirt. The only good news is the tobacco your grandkids are gonna farm for free. It's gonna give a shitload of these white motherfuckers cancer. And I ain't even started yet. A hundred years later, you're fucked. A hundred years after that, fucked. A hundred years after you get free, you still getting fucked out of job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? This guy gets it. I like him. He's getting angry. Angry is good. Angry gets shit done. Usually tears become an answer. And here he is telling you. You are staring down the barrel of 300 years of subjugation, racist bullshit, and heart disease. He is telling you there is one goddamn reason you shouldn't go up there right now and slit the throats of every last one of these Dutch motherfuckers and set fire! <laughs> you are already dead, asshole. At least die a sacrifice for something worthwhile. Let the motherfucker burn. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. Abolition. 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 Today. Abolition. 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 Now let's talk a little bit about the racist rhetoric of the Republican Party. No, and by the way, 
Sure, the Democratic Party has a history of racism, too. That's how they kept power in the Jim Crow South for so long. But the Democrats, starting in the 1960s, went on a deliberate campaign of racial signaling to white people that they were the party of white people. Richard Nixon was openly racist in private. Listen to the, uh, or read the White House tape logs sometimes. Sometime He sought to undermine Democrats in 1968 when he ran for president the second time with what he called the Southern strategy, welcoming segregationists into the Republican party. It worked. He fear-mongered based on the riots that had taken place in America's inner cities the year before, based on demonstrations uh, against the war by uh, white uh, anti-war young people and so on. His law and order rhetoric, as, as he used it in 1968, was really a thinly disguised message. We'll help you by protecting you white people from those blacks and those hippies. His war on drugs was another racially-based stratagem. His top aide, John Ehrlichman, admitted it later. Here's what John Ehrlichman said about the war on drugs. He said, you want to know what it was really all about? We had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks. But by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Oh, and by the way, Ehrlichman went on to say, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Protesters and mourners gathered in large numbers all across the United States. Demanding justice after the death of George Floyd. Coast to coast, really, we are seeing some of the largest demonstrations we've seen yet against racial injustice and police brutality. Dear Mr. President, come take a walk with me. Let's pretend we're just two people and you're no better than me. I'd like to ask you some questions if we could speak honestly. What do you feel when you see all the homeless on the streets? Who do you pray for at night before you go to sleep? What do you feel when you look in the mirror? Are you proud? How do you sleep while the rest of us cry? How do you dream when a mother has no chance to say goodbye? How do you walk with your head held Protests at times mm-hmm. violent have broken out across the country. Officers beating protesters, hitting them with batons, throwing people to the ground, striking again people who appear to be unarmed. Dear Mr. President, are you a lonely boy? Are you a lonely boy? 
Are you a spoiled boy? How can you say that no child is left behind? We're not dumb and we're not blind. You sent our parents to different places, then left them sitting in your cages. What kind of father would take his own daughter's rights away? What kind of man thinks a marriage isn't right if you are gay? I can only imagine what the first lady has to say. Does she only talk when she copies it all? Say goodbye. How do you walk with your head held high? Can you even look me in the eye? Let me tell you about hard work. Minimum wage with a baby on the way. Let me tell you about hard work. Can't afford the castle you live. I want you to know that you matter. I want you to know that your lives matter. And so I hope that you also feel hopeful, even as you may feel angry. Dear Mr. President, you never take a walk with me. Let's talk about George Floyd. You said George Floyd's death was a terrible thing. Terrible. Why are African-Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. Abolition. 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 Uh, There's just racial issues around the globe. And I just wanted to start tonight, Mark, with just a conversation about race and and how that relates to the criminal justice system and all the things that we're seeing across the globe right now. Yeah, this is something that our campaign is really kind of uniquely situated to address. And we've been working with these issues at a foundational level uh, back to the very the first announcement of our campaign when we announced in May of 2019 that we wanted to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. And one of the primary critiques we have of our foundations is that not only is our foundations not inclusive, uh, they exclude women, they exclude natives, they exclude African Americans, but the 13th Amendment keeps slavery legal within our criminal justice system. And this is the criminal justice system that is now 
murdering and lynching and not bringing justice, not only on the streets, but even in the courts, especially the people of color. And we believe very firmly that any serious dialogue on criminal justice reform needs to begin with abolishing slavery. We have to take the clause out of the 13th Amendment that says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. That clause, that was inserted there by a politician from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, who, if you really study his his history, history, was a blatant white supremacist. supremacist. 13th Amendment, free the slaves and made more. They chained us down a lot to suffer and then they made more. Yeah. Uh. I done took too many L's like a debut on Murray. You don't stand for nothing. They don't kids, starts to incarceration the buses. Till we did leave the party. Had to weigh my intents. Double back for my hips. Yeah. Ooh, free my niggas out the trap. Huh? Roaches in my cereal. We ain't had no bank account. Disconnect my sprint phone. Friends be looking pitiful. Hard as that scenario. Stressing that day. Yeah, day I got a wet. Don't I? You ain't got no money. Sleep on the floor. Strip on the street. If you ain't got no job, ain't got no job, no food to eat. Everybody depend on you. And damn it, who you ask for help? Everybody down bad. They going through the same head. You wanna do what you gonna do? They call it surviving. They hit listen servants and they selling dope surviving. And every day you gotta hustle just to stay afloat You look around and all your brothers in the same boat Your skin proud, black, they put us in section They got us bit Hover police spitting fat, take your consent and straight to pit And the youngest ain't strapped, you lacking on spitting fat In the bottom of the back, lose the trial, ain't coming back, yeah Ooh, free my niggas out the trap, huh? You don't stand for nothing. They don't kill you. Start your incarceration of us. Till we did leave the party. Had to weigh my intents. Double back for my hair. Yeah. God be our strength when we broke as hell. When we going through hell, living in hell, living in cells. All this oppression, no, you see us in it. All this depression, no, you see us in it. Lord, it's my best, will pass on all my sin. No, you a Venus, I know your mercy is thin. Mercy to the slums, mercy for us all to repent. Free us for myself. Change our high life for real. We was lost, but you ain't forsaken. You took the cross just to save us, yeah. Free my side of the trap. Free my side of the trap now, yeah. They trying to lock us up in prison. We the slaves, we the slaves. 13 of me, man, yeah. Side of the trap, Free my niggas out the trap now, yeah They wanna lock us up in prison We the slaves, we the slaves 13 of men, man, yeah. We the slaves, we the slaves 13 of men, man Abolition, 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 abolition. 
Hi, I'm Rand Abdel-Fattah. And I'm Ramtin Arablui. We co-host NPR's history podcast, Through Line, to help give some historical context to the police killing of George Floyd and so many other Black people in this country. This week, we're bringing you the deep history of policing in America. We wanted to understand how the relationship between police and the Black community had evolved to one so bloody and tragic. So we reached out to this historian. My name's Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. In his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Khalil lays out a historical argument for how Black people have been criminalized over the past 400 years in the U.S. And he does that by telling parallel narratives about the history of policing in the North and the South. These stories share one key feature, the use of brutal force to control Black Americans. Policing in America started in the mid-1600s with the Boston Watch, essentially a neighborhood watch group. But some of the first police forces in the South were created to control enslaved Black people. They would come to be known as slave patrols. Almost all white men had to serve in these patrols. Their duties were written into law, like the slave patrol statute from Louisiana in 1835. Arrest any slave or slaves, whether with or without a permit, who may be caught in the woods or forests with any fire or torch, which slave or slaves thus arrested shall be subjected to corporal punishment not exceeding 30 stripes. So the tying together early on, the surveillance, the deputization essentially of all white men to be police officers, and then to dispense corporal punishment uh, on the scene are all baked in from the very beginning. The Civil War eventually brought an end to slavery in America. But for most Black people in the South, it didn't fundamentally change their lives. And by the early 20th century, the KKK would emerge to enforce control over Black citizens in the South. And this pushed millions of Black citizens to flee to northern, progressive cities as part of what would become known as the Great Migration. Police officers receive African-American migrants uh, in the same way that their white neighbors and community peers did, which is with contempt and hostility. When a white person throws a Molotov cocktail into a new black homeowner on a street that had previously been all Irish or all Polish or all German, the police come and they arrest the black family and defend the white mob. And this happens time and time over and over again. They are policing the racial norms of white supremacy from the very beginning in the North. Black skin becomes equated with criminality. And according to Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the system hasn't fundamentally changed since then. He says that pointing out the problem is clearly not sufficient to fix the system. Because the problem has been known for a century. The evidence has been presented for a century. The recommendations for change, for holding police officers accountable, for charging them with criminal offenses when they behave criminally. It's a century of the same story playing out over and over again. It seems to me that's what's possible is recognizing that police officers and police agencies are incapable of fixing themselves. And so the question that has to be asked in the wake of George Floyd, and 
I think this question is being asked and answered by more white people than I've seen in my lifetime is, do white people in America still want the police to protect their interests over the rights and dignity and lives of black and in too many cases, brown, indigenous, and Asian populations in this country. Our whole country is waiting to hear the answer to that question. That was historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ramtin Arablui. I'm Rand Abdel Fattah. You can listen to this full episode of NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts and at npr.org slash throughline. What is it you want me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? Abolition. 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 Hey, Louise. This is Dr. Hochi, Steve Hochi in Houston. I want you to give a message to the governor. I want to make sure that he has National Guard down here and they have the order to shoot to kill. If any of these son of a bitch people start rioting like they have in Dallas, start tearing down businesses, shoot to kill the son of a bitches. That's the only way you restore order. Kill them. Thank you. Received. It was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when they're killing niggas, but you speak loud when we ride. Got opinions coming from a place of privilege. Sicker than the COVID, how they did them on the ground. Speaking of the COVID, is it still going around? Why won't you tell me about the looting? What's that really all about? Cause they throw away black lives like paper towels plus unemployment rate. What? 40 million now killed a man in broad day. Might never see a trial. We just want to break chains like slaves in the South. Started in the North End, but we in the downtown. Riot cops try to block. Now we got a showdown. Down. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. The bullets was flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Turn on YouTube, dawg, look how they do us. Knee on our necks, bullets and backs, stimulus checks, strictly for blacks. History repeating, people scared to eat a chicken. Everybody going vegan, what they put in it. Look at the world we living in, they got a shook in it. You going, you jogged, and your color might get you took in it. The man in the mirror can't look away, you gotta look at it. Black lives matter, so what it means when they shoot at it? Generation genocide, what happened to enterprise? Heard the man infiltrated, Black Panther re-energized, ain't nothing to figure out. They trying to kill us out. If I take a nail, see my fist, I'm a killer now. Just think, bullshit, you got to filter out 
Are you really ready for the smoke like a swisher house? Ready for the revolution? Who ready to ride? It won't be televised, so tell me who ready to die. If downtown going up, where we have it to shit? We at the liquor store, nigga, about to get us a fifth. No, they about to start looting, grab the gloves and masks. Watch out for them tanks when they rolling past, shit. <laughs> Never understand why they do it. Someone cut the channel off the news before I lose it. I ain't even tripping. If you with it, then we looting. Help me put this Louie in the back of Suzuki. Oh, he had to break it down so smoothly. They gon' say it's not about race, but we moving. Oh, pow. Cut the trade pound. Had to put them in my name. Wish a nigga play now. Any given day, I'll be headed to the pulpit. Say a little prayer. Matter of fact, I need two of them. Ooh, only do it. Only do it. Ooh, this ain't 92, so we in the new rules. Niggas got hips, so we don't lose. Been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. The bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? Goddamn lie. Being a police officer is not an easy job by any means. It is certainly not an easy job under conditions of maximum stress. But it is very hard to look at the videos that we have been seeing from all across the country, and particularly this one video we're going to show you, which you may have seen, and not conclude that there is something deeply broken in the culture of policing in here. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build 125,000 new prison cells. We have predators on our streets. How can he really be a progressive and want to lock these people up? And I'd say lock the SOBs up. Increase the penalties. Increase them. I would put the son of a gun in jail. Put them to death. Now we can find some fringe folks, libertarians and left-wingers in my party who say, nah, that's not what we should do. But politically, that consensus been arrived. Biden crime bill. Biden crime bill. The Biden crime bill. The Biden crime bill. Hell, we've got crime bills coming out our ears. The president says he wants to wage a war on drugs. But if that's true, what we need is another D-Day, not another Vietnam. Almost the same thing that got passed, the Patriot Act, was introduced by me in 1994. Every major crime bill since 1976. Every minor crime bill has had the name of the Democratic Senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden. I sat next to Strom Thurmond. No, 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 no. And became friends with Strom Thurmond. Together we passed the crime bill. So don't tell me you can't work with people and compromise. Woo! 
Where's all this from? The government can take everything you own. Everything from your car to your house, your bank account. They can take everything. You got a gun? You commit a felony? Ten years. We already have it five years. Minimum mandatory. Judge can't say, you know, you had it in your pocket, you never intended to use it, we're only going to give you one year. Judge has to say five years. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build 125,000 new prison cells. Well, he wants to make it 10 or 20 or 60. I, we can work that out. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Those people they those literally people. have not been socialized. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask, what made them do this? They must be taken off the street. They are in jail. Those people, those people, those people. Away from my mother, those people, those people. your husband, our family, those people. A wag in the newspaper recently wrote, Biden has made it a death penalty offense for everything but jaywalk. Those people, those people, those people. I'm going to make it for 46 crimes. Biden says make it for 51. We're going to get tough. 60 new death penalties, brand new, 60. There are 70 additional enhancements of penalties, i.e. you go to jail longer. When I wrote the original bill that started this whole process, the so-called Biden crime bill, I didn't call a liberal confab and write it. I didn't call any big society people and write it. I called the cops. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build 125,000 new prison cells. That's the secret. That somehow the Republicans tried to make the crime bill tougher. I say, poppycock. They didn't make anything tougher. I wrote that bill. Those people, those people. I started looking at it, found out that this midnight basketball and get them together a bunch of jive folks who are black, white, and Spanish. Those people, those people, those people. Living in their city to do, uh, you know, try to see if they can be Michael Jordan. Those people, those people, those people. And they found out they were keeping schools open so gangs come off streets instead of out raping my mother, marauding me, robbing the local store. In a gymnasium, my daughter will be safer, my wife will be safer, my mother will be safer, and I will be safer. Those people, those people, and I will be happy. You ashamed of that bill? Not at all. Um, in fact, I drafted it. We had enormous success. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build 125,000 new prison cells. There are things I would change. But by and large, what it really did, it restored American cities. America is under attack, literally, under attack by an enemy who is well-financed, well-supplied and well-armed, and fully capable of declaring total war against the nation and its people. We have to hold every drug user accountable. Those people, those people. We need more prisons, more jails, more courts, more prosecutors. Quite frankly, the president's plan's not tough enough, bold enough or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand. We're going to have to worry about getting governors uh, to go out in the mountainsides with flamethrowers with you next to them, um, uh, dealing with it in their backyard. During the period of bloodshed and mayhem of which the president has spoken, we passed the law. Those people, those people. Bipartisan. Those people, those people. 
We said crack cocaine is such a bad deal. But if you find someone with this much of it, a quarter's worth, not in value, in size. Five years in jail. Five years, no probation, no parole. If you have this much, lock them up and put them in our prison. Those people, those people, those people. Boot camps for youthful offenders. Under this bill, we can string up barbed wire. We can build Quonset huts and we can put them in boot camps. We can do that. I've been fighting to get these club drugs changed and scheduled for years. DEA was my opposition. That's the scum who should be put in jail. Those people, those people. Not just the guy selling the pills. Arrest the promoter. Those people. Find a rationale unrelated to drugs. You don't have to get them for drugs. Turn off the water, I put you in jail. I put you in jail. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build 125,000 new prisons. I'm the guy who authored the crack house legislation. We can use the crack house legislation. Tear down these buildings. You can literally bulldoze down their business. Great big bulldozers. Bulldoze it down. Literally, not figure to those people, those people. Holding our media accountable is um, something we all desire, but uh, there's a thing called the First Amendment, which is read in a way that I think is a little excessive. There's a big mistake that was made, but it's trapped an entire generation. Those people, those people. You can ask the Attorney General this, because I got a call when he introduced the Patriot Act. He said, Joe, I'm introducing the act basically as you wrote it in 1994. This bill met with an overwhelming, overwhelming agreement in Congress. I've learned one thing since I've decided to run for president. And I assume one thing. Everything about me, everything about me is going to come out in the public record. And I've done some dumb things, and I'll do dumb things again. A Democratic president wants 100,000 cops. A Democratic president wants to build a slavery in Egypt. He had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. Soon, there will only be the conqueror and the conquerors. Step into the spotlight. You are a good man. Step into the spotlight. With a good heart. It's hard for a good man to be a king. Well, good afternoon, everybody. And uh, President Clinton, thank you for your very kind introduction. Uh, although I have to admit, uh, I really did like uh, the speech a few weeks ago a little bit better. Now, afterwards, somebody tweeted that... Uh, Somebody needs to make him secretary of explaining things. 
Although it, they didn't use the word faint. Today I want to discuss Today an issue discuss that ought to concern every person, concern every person because, because it is a debasement, is a debasement of our common humanity. It ought to concern every community because it tears at our social fabric. It ought to concern every business because it distorts markets. It ought to concern every nation because it endangers public health and fuels violence and organized crime. I'm talking about the injustice, the injustice, the outrage, the outrage of human trafficking, of human trafficking, which must be called by its true name, modern slavery. Now, I do not use that word slavery lightly. It evokes, obviously, one of the most painful chapters in our nation's history. But around the world, there's no denying the awful reality. When a man desperate for work finds himself in a factory or on a fishing boat or in a field, working, toiling for little or no pay and beaten if he tries to escape, that is slavery. When a woman is locked in a sweatshop or trapped in a home as a domestic servant, alone and abused, and incapable, and incapable of leaving, of leaving. That's, slavery. that's slavery. When a little boy is kidnapped, boy is kidnapped turned into a child soldier, into a child forced, soldier to kill, forced to kill or be killed, or be killed. That's, slavery. that's slavery. That's slavery. When a little girl is little sold girl by her impoverished by family, girls my daughter's age, runs away from home, or is lured by the false promise of a better life, and then imprisoned in a brothel and tortured if she resists? That's slavery. That's slavery. It is barbaric, and it is evil. It has no place in a civilized world. Now, as a nation, As a nation, we've long nation, rejected, we've such rejected such cruelty. Just a few days ago, we marked the 150th anniversary of a document that I have hanging in the Oval Office, the Emancipation Proclamation. And I've got the Emancipation Proclamation hanging up in my office. Uh, and if you read through it, it turns out that uh, most of it, most of the document is those states and areas where the emancipation doesn't apply because those folks are allied with the Union, so they can keep their slaves. Think about that. That's the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Which you, so here you've got a wartime president who's making a compromise around probably the greatest moral issue that the country ever faced because he understood that right now my job is to win the war and to keep, uh, to maintain the Union. Well, you know, can you imagine how sort of uh, the Huffington Post would have reported on that? <laughs> right? I mean, it would have been blissful, right? You know? I mean, think about it. Lincoln sells out slaves. Right? And there'd be protests, and you're going to run a third-party guy. In fact, I heard Martin Luther King say this one time. We were in Virginia and we were on the balcony of, uh, of an old plantation 
it was a conference center where we were having a conference and uh, they, they set us in these rocking chairs out on the porch and we were looking out and it just happened that there were students from University of Virginia uh, who were doing the serving and who were cutting the grass and it was a good summer job. And Dr. King and I and a few other preachers were laying up there drinking iced tea uh, and rocking back and forth. Look, he, he said, you know, I can see that when you're sitting up here, slavery don't look so bad. <laughs> Abolition. Abolition. How does it feel to be, to be a problem? The reason for the political hesitation in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. And I am I'm a grown man, and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be, but I don't know, and neither does Martin Luther King. None of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored, who don't believe anything the white world says, and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. It seems to me that the city of New York, for example, this is my last point. How does it feel to be, to be a problem? We've had Negroes in it for a very long time. If the city of New York were able, as it has indeed been able, in the last 15 years to reconstruct itself, tear down buildings and raise great new ones, downtown and for money, and has done nothing whatever except build housing projects in the ghetto for the Negroes. And of course, the Negroes hate it. Presently, the property does indeed deteriorate because the children cannot bear it. They want to get out of the ghetto. If the American pretensions were based on more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, it would not mean for Negroes, when someone says urban renewal, that Negroes simply are going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. If the American Negro had not been present in America, I am convinced that the history of the American labor movement would be much more edifying than it is. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. How does it feel to be, to be a problem? And until that moment, until the moment comes <coughs> when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. And that I am not a war of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream. Because the people who are denied participation in it, by their very presence, will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you.
does it feel to be, be a problem? Everyone has problems. It, it, that's the human condition. No amount of wealth, no racial privilege, no righteousness of purpose and action leads to a life without problems. Everyone has them. But Du Bois was pointing to something different. Not just having problems, but being a problem. How does it feel to be a problem? To have your very body and the bodies of your children to be assumed to be criminal, violent, malignant. How does it feel to be trapped on the roof of your home as the flood waters rise and be called a refugee? How does it feel to fear sending your son to the 7-Eleven for a bag of Skittles on a rainy night? Du Bois wrote of black men, he simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. This then is the end of his striving, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture, to escape both death and isolation, to husband and use his best powers and his latent genius. This is the dream that will continue to guide us as we continue the struggle. Abolition. Abolition. At Outfront tonight, tone deaf, as protests grow for the 16th day in this country, the president's top economic advisor had this to say when he was asked about systemic racism in the United States. I don't believe there's systemic racism in the U.S. I'm not going to go into a long riff on it. At all in the U.S.? I do not. You don't think there's any systemic racism against African Americans in the United States? I will say it again. I do not. Cudlow clear on how he feels. He says it's not an issue. This despite the massive protests that have been taking place every night across the country now for more than two weeks. Watch this. It has been said before, but I will repeat it. The proposition that America is institutionally racist requires that something creates an environment. Two things create an environment for slavery or racism, and they are needed for it to exist. One is a social contract, as in the South during slavery. Two, codified law. Neither, Neither of those of things, things exist in American, American culture, culture today. today. You should be ashamed. Nothing's really changed And it's your ignorance That won't give me a chance Because of the color of my skin You 
after all this time you won't change your mind and you should be Here is Richard Pryor from his live broadcast of September 15th. It's uh, really uh, hard to be funny when, you know, what's went down at uh, Attica, you know, really upsets me. And, you know, a lot of people talking about it. And I'm kind of uptight to talk about it or say anything that I really feel about it. But I have understanding, you know. What I dislike very much is that they're trying to insult our intelligence by trying to make us think we ought to do something about it or that they think they are going to do something about it, which is absolutely nothing. But they're doing a number. You know on the uh, news, the commercial news, as it were. You know, they told a lie. Now they, you know, they got to deal with it because I know every nigga knows what happens that people don't really care about it. I wrote something about it. I'm a comedian. I wrote a little comedy, and I like to uh, <clears throat> read something to you. Murder the dogs, the mad, frothing at the mouth dogs with expensive capped teeth and fat bellies full of babies starving. No, don't wait until they die. Kill them now, because if you let them live and die a natural death, you'll be bitten and left to die in agony. And the mad dog, pack, will then sniff out and search for your children to eat, eat whole, flesh, bones, and soul. These beasts will then retard the ones they have not eaten in their schools of unlearning. They will teach you, they will teach your children to do their hunting and capture their own, to bring to them to devour. And the dog, the mad dog, will end up patting you on the head and throwing you a bone. Could you, before we go, just say that poem for us? Oh, this poem minute uh, explains uh, the Attica prison. You heard that over here when all the black prisoners were shot and just before they held some white hostages and they said they would cut the throats if they didn't get what they wanted. And the word was, well, if the throats are cut, then shoot and kill everybody. They found out during the autopsy that the throats were not cut, they just shot them for nothing. They triggered happy policemen, and that Rockefeller gave word 10 minutes or so, if they don't give up, I think it's the way it went, open fire. And one black prisoner came out to speak to the warden, and he said, you have 10 minutes to surrender. What's your reply? We're going to come in shooting. And the black prisoner came out, 
poetic poem. This didn't happen, but this is what I wrote. He said, better far from all I see to die fighting to be free. What more fitting end could be? Better surely than in some bed where in broken health I'm led, lingering until I'm dead. Better than with prayers and pleas are in the clutch of some disease, wasting slowly by degrees. Better than of heart attack are some dose of drug I lack. Let me die by being black. Better far that I should go standing here against the foe is the sweeter death to know. Better than the bloody stain on some highway where I'm laying, torn by flying glass and pain. Better call in death to come than to die another dumb, muted victim in the slum. Better than of this prison rot, if there's any choice I've got. Kill me here on the spot. Better far my fight to wage now while my blood boils with rage, lest it cool with ancient age. Better violent for us to die than to Uncle Tom and try, making peace just to live a lie. Better now that I say my sooth, I'm gonna die demanding truth while I'm still akin to youth. Better now than later on, now that fear of death is gone, never mind another darn. They opened fire on them, but they died telling it like it was. Abolition. Abolition. Simple demand. 
Abolition. 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 1777, Vermont issues the first ban on slavery. Rich people are like, so, by 1804, all of the northern states within the U.S. were in favor of abolishing slavery. Now, this doesn't mean that every person in the north was an abolitionist, and it doesn't mean that every single person in the south was an anti-abolitionist. In fact, most people in the south were like, we don't own slaves. This is more about the wealthy people in the South not wanting to abolish slavery. So the wealthy people in the South band together. We ain't abolishing nothing. They band together and decided that they would withdraw from the Union, AKA the United States of America. And in order to get more people on board with the idea of withdrawing from America, they had some pretty serious scare tactics in place. Lincoln is gonna free these damn niggers. They gonna rape your wives kill your kids, then they're gonna kill you. They're subhuman. They don't think like us. Matter of fact, they don't think. They just kill. So a lot of people in the South believed that and voted in favor of seceding from the North. But a lot of other whites in the South were like, <clears throat> get rid of these damn slaves so I can get me a decent job. I can't compete with no free labor. I don't want to secede. I like being part of the United States America. You still feel that way? So the Southern USA regarded itself the Confederate and attempted to separate itself from the Union. Only thing gonna be free round here is moonshine boy get the pick and as the abolitionists of the north stood their ground the country grew divided with the south steadfast on keeping slavery legal the slave population grew bigger and bigger because the confederate or the south weren't budget but in the same way that we have the tea party which is a minority group of the republican party back in those days we had copperhead democrats they were a minority group of democrats who wanted to end the civil war these fools were in favor of maintaining slavery and they believed they could use slavery to save the union they were initially called copperheads because of their snake-like tendencies, but with some savvy marketing, the Copperhead label became a symbol of liberty. This is why I stress branding is so important. No, seriously. So Lincoln fired some warning shots around 1862. He let the country know. He's like, if you do not side with the Union and free the slaves, I'm going to issue an executive order. Right now, Jimmy, right now. I'm going to count to 100. You do it right now. But the southern states were unified and not one of them conceded. So in 1863, an executive order was issued by President Lincoln to free the slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation went into a effect in every single state except for one. Guess who? Texas. 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 It was ordered upon 10 of 11 Confederate states in resistance to the free slave movement. And it also insisted that the Army and Navy acknowledge escaped slaves as free men, recruit them, and pay them. Progress, baby! It took about a year, but they even got Louisiana on board, okay? I'm all over the place right now. I need fact checkers. Was it 10 or 11 Confederate states? Post it in the comments below. Please provide your source along with it. I love you. The Emancipation Proclamation technically freed three million slaves, but not really. Due to the resistance of the South, slaves still had to escape their masters and make it to a free state. Think of it more like a safe zone. Another option was for slaves to wait until the Union Army had occupied the state that they were enslaved in. Quick question, what type of slave do you think you'd be? The type to escape or the type to wait for the Union Army to occupy the state you were enslaved in? Some slaves started running for their damn lives. I had to pause this recording to shave my nose hairs. Where were we? It took a couple of years, but before you know it, there are about three million, four million free slaves. Now, this didn't mean that the country instantaneously embraced blacks. Oh, you're free. You're one of us now. No, actually, racism sustained until... Now, with the abolishing of slavery, wealthy folks were salty because without free labor, the southern economy was hurting. Forest squirting, fine. I'm kidding. No, but seriously, the southern economy was in trouble. Huh? and slaves were now homeless. Their flesh wounds still fresh, no money, no food, no medical assistance, basically no resources. Think the black naked and afraid with no camera crew and no whip scars. 
Delaware and Kentucky, slavery stayed legal in them joints right up until 1865. I'm going as fast as I can. Jeez. But meanwhile, in the background, an amendment to the Constitution was being crafted to officiate the ending of slavery. The 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment. It was passed by Senate in 1864 and came into effect December 1865. While everyone was celebrating the abolition of slavery, dealing with the aftermath of the Civil War, and protesting the violation of white rights, Congress's sneaky asses were slipping tricky language into the Constitution and stated though slavery was abolished, it would still be legal by punishment of crime. And just like that, The prison population went from 95% white males to 95% black males. How we let them do this? Just to be clear, while common folk were fighting against one another over the abolition of slavery or celebrating the abolition of slavery, political officials and wealthy slave owners were crafting a loophole. Like I said, some things never change. Anyway, just like that. Oh. The prison population went from 95% white males to 95% black males. But how? How could you arrest that many black people so quickly? I'll tell you how. Black code and pig law. Let's break them down starting with black code. Black marriage, legalized. Black ownership of property, legalized. Blacks were allowed some access to the courts but could not testify against whites. Blacks were forced to sign long-term contracts with their former slave masters who still refused to pay them. So blacks would often work for their former slave masters for almost a year without pay. Blacks could not challenge their slave masters in the court of law because then they would have to testify against whites which at the time was illegal. Blacks could not accept employment without approval from their former employer or slave master. Those laws were repealed in 1866 and in came pig law which was the answer to the repeal of black code. Pig law went as follows. Jobless while black? Illegal. Illegal. Loitering while black? Illegal. 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 Stealing bread while black? Five year sentence. Blacks were like man we gotta get out of here. So they started taking railroad cars to the north but then the south got hip to it. Standing their railroad while black? Illegal. Riding railroad cars while black. Illegal. Basic misdemeanors came with extremely harsh sentences and fines. And if a black person couldn't pay those fines, they went to Bank of America and got a loan. No, they went to jail. Blacks were not allowed on juries. Most blacks couldn't afford to hire a lawyer. No blacks that I know of were afforded public defendants, which pretty much quadrupled the prison population and began the convict lease system. The convict lease system. The convict lease system. Starving homeless blacks, aka free slaves, were arrested and given harsh sentences most of the time for menial crime. Then leased off by the county sheriffs and judges to coal mining companies, contractors of bridge and railroad repair, farmers, and quite often their former slave masters. And unfortunately, many freed blacks were arrested and died in captivity anyway. The death toll of legal slaves then jumped up to about 40 or 50 percent because it wasn't in the best interest of those who leased slaves to take care of them when they could just get a new one, like an iPhone or a toupee. So pig law and the 13th Amendment pretty much reversed everything the abolitionists had accomplished. And that drama sustained well into the Jim Crow era. If you've never heard of the Jim Crow laws, my fact checkers will provide that information in the comments below with their sources, right? Thank you, fact checkers. Fact checkers, I got you. Sending some of y'all t-shirts. I love you. So blacks were like, forget this. And by the early 1900s, blacks had united in the northern part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, successfully establishing their own version of Wall Street. We're talking 30 plus grocery stores, 20 plus restaurants, 20 plus churches. No, not churches, chicken idiot. Movie theaters. 
schools, libraries, a bank. You know how hard it is to get your own bank too? Prominent black hospitals, a post office, their own public transportation system. Six of the black people in that community owned their own planes. And this was all black owned. A dollar circulated in this community for up to a year before leaving the community. This black community in the northern region of Tulsa, Oklahoma was booming. Well, right up until the Ku Klux Klan caught up to it in 1921. We're talking air raids leaving 3,000 African Americans in the community dead. This was the original Oklahoma bomb. Every business, every school, every church burned to the ground. The Ku Klux Klan even burned down the community's two hospitals. 3,000 African Americans dead. The puzzling thing is, is that the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995, which left 168 dead, is recorded as the worst terrorist attack to occur on U.S. soil. 168, 168, 3,000. 168, 3,000. I agree. All lives should matter. Apparently, these 3,000 did not. The moral to the story is, selective history pisses people off. It was like every time African Americans took a step forward, the hateful opposition would knock them a couple steps back. So here's what we have so far. We had all these United Americans, black, white, and everything in between, working to free the slaves, only to have free blacks enslaved once again. A black community who worked so hard despite the opposition, built its own Wall Street, its own schools, its own educational system, its own bank. Massacred, bombed, burned down. Let's see what my fact checkers came up with. The Jim Crow laws were segregation laws on the state and local level put in place after the reconstruction period of the South. You know, anti-integration, keeping blacks out of politics, white schools and white women. Segregation of public transportation, restrooms, restaurants, water fountains. This is video? Why are you so stupid? So blacks started fighting to get into the white schools because without education and opportunity, life is pretty bleak. But them Jim Crow laws were like, hell no, hell no. The Jim Crow laws continued until they were overruled by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Damn, I was conceived just two years later. Yup, I grew up to Ivan Putski, Andre the Giant, and Jake the Snake Roberts. Y'all wanna see some ugly hands? The 70s was so deep, 1971. That's right around the time Nixon declared the war on drugs. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. So John Ehrlichman, Nixon's chief domestic advisor, did an interview with Harper Magazine in 1994. He spoke quite openly about why he and Nixon orchestrated the war on drugs. No embellishments whatsoever. This is what he had to say. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies. The anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And there you have it, straight from one of the creators of the war on drugs. I don't know, man. Sound like people got different definitions for democracy. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. So you're saying that the war on drugs was actually a war on hippies and blacks. Um, why would the news lie about that? It doesn't make any sense. That's just a conspiracy theory. This is America. Fact checkers, please. Wait a minute. Fact checkers, if you want to win one of these beautiful t-shirts, just go to prisonlogic.com and post your facts there. Now, where was I? The war on hippies and blacks continues to this very day. I think Nelson Rockefeller, then governor of New York, got in on it too. He was like, give them life without parole, even if they're a juvenile, with no chance of repeal. And that's how the mandatory drug possession charge became a minimum sentence of 15 years. You better get that money, 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 get that money. Before you know it, the whole country was on the bandwagon. Remember how I was talking about the convict lease? System? Well, it was so profitable, it began to revive
thrive economies across the country in every state wanted in. Big money prisons were gaining major influence on Capitol Hill. They began paying politicians to push for harsher laws and longer sentences. And long, long, longer sentences. You better get that money. Get that money. Get that money. Get that money. Here we were in the 1970s and blacks who had only made up 13% of the U.S. population made up 41% of the prison population. Get that money. Put it like this. One out of every four black men went to jail. So while blacks and whites fought side by side to help blacks gain the right to vote, one in four black men were being incarcerated and revoked of their right to vote. Get it? Then came the 80s, the Reagan era. And this mug had the nerve to declare a war on drugs. Talk about history repeating itself. Good lord. So this go-round, the Reagan administration labels the Sandinistas of the Nicaraguan government a socialist government that must be overthrown for democracy. To do so, the Reagan administration provided financial aid to the Contras who were in opposition of the Sandinistas. But once the U.S. discovered that the Contras were also using drug money to fund their rebellion, U.S. Congress was like... And they cut off all funds to the Contras. Then Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North or whatever his rank is comes up with what he labels a neat idea. He was like, we don't need Congress. We can sell guns to Iran. Take that money and give it to the country. Congress ain't got to know nothing. That's not going to be enough. So we got his boy Oscar Danilo Blandin from Nicaragua. Oscar had drugs wholesale and a connect in California named Freeway Rick Ross. And Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North proceeds with this plan. We gonna act like we don't know. Let my boy Oscar bring his drugs into the USA. His connect Freeway Rick Ross is gonna push the drug to the most vulnerable black communities in California. Then spread to St. Louis, New Orleans, Texas, Kansas City, Oklahoma, North Carolina, South Carolina, Indiana, Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Ohio. Oh, I forgot Seattle. He'll take some of that drug money and use that to fund the Contras too. Boom! And we're back in business with Nicaragua. Democracy. I don't know. Fact checkers. Anyway, Oliver North eventually got busted. He served three years in prison. His connect and drug lord Oscar Danilo Brandon served two years in work with the DEA to help bring down Freeway Rick Ross, who ended up serving 25 years because that's the black penalty for selling drugs in the United States of America. Was it 25 years? Fact checkers, I need your help because I do believe that Freeway Rick Ross's sentence was five times longer than Oliver North and Oscar Danilo Blandin's sentences combined. I'm not glorifying Freeway Rick Ross for being so eager to sell out his own community, but I do think it's interesting that Oliver North, who orchestrated the whole thing, was able to sit in front of the Supreme Court and say, I thought it was a neat idea and only served three years. How we let them do this? Guess who else served time? All the black drug addicts, mamas with crack baby, drug affiliates, etc. And that pretty much devastated much of what was left of the black community. It's so insightful how government has the ability to declare a war on drugs just before the drugs are pumped into the community. Black is beautiful, but black is also highly abused and highly incarcerated has been since 1865. For instance, the convict lease system, the convict lease system has been so successful and so profitable that even private prisons are making the killing in the prison industrial complex. Did you know that the private prison industry lobbied for harsher and longer sentences and for the right to detain immigrants who were supposed to be deported? They spent 45 million bribing folks on Capitol Hill. 45 million, 45 million, 45 million bribing folks on Capitol Hill and in the mainstream media. Do you know what the private prison industry grosses per year? 5.1 billion dollars. I could buy like 10 fishing kayaks with that. The profitable convict lease system is part of the reason that this war on drugs theme is so popular. Still, today, one out of four black men will be incarcerated. Luckily, out of the four black men in my family, I was the brother who went to jail, thank God. Well, me and Tijuana Jackson, that's why I'm crazy. 
Speaking of history repeating itself, I can't forget Bill Clinton's war on drugs. He signed the 1994 crime bill, didn't he? And his wife coined the term super predator, which basically means these damn niggers. Super predator. They gonna rape your wives. Super predator. Kill your kids, then they gonna kill you. Super predator. They're subhuman. Super predator. They don't think like us. Super predator. Matter of fact, they don't think, which really helped beef up the prison population and the convict lease system. You know what? History ain't nothing but a one-trick pony. With all the opposition I've just mentioned, we have still managed to produce some of the world's top artists, some of the world's top entrepreneurs, some of the world's top athletes, a black president. How did I forget Kanye? Some of the world's top fashionistas. Y'all know what we need, right? Modern day abolitionists. Look at it like this. The more you buy into the concept that putting nonviolent people in jail for extreme amounts of time is a good idea, the more jobs you lose to the convict lease system. Sound familiar? Is history predictable or what? Look, it's really simple. While you're pointing your finger at immigrants, the very same politicians we allow to divide us are the ones who promote the campaign that help to beef up the convict leasing system and the prison industrial complex. Is it clicking a little bit? And the larger those industries grow, the smaller the job market becomes. I don't know about you, but I need my family protected from that dude who went to jail for smoking weed over a ping pong injury. I gotta drink some water on that. Really though, it's the same trick over and over. Kick them out, arrest them, and make us feel safe. Here's another way to look at it, and I'm not being sarcastic. Actually, I am being sarcastic. The safer politicians claim they will make you feel, the less livelihood you have, the less job opportunities you have, the less of a future your children have. But hey, keep them pot smokers off the streets. History repeating itself. History is starting to look like a Ferris wheel. You should be assembling military uniforms. You should be building furniture for high-rise office buildings. You should be farming tilapia. You should be assembling headphones for the leading manufacturers. You should be holding dentures for dentists across the country. You should be upholstering chairs for furniture manufacturers. You should be transcribing textbooks into Braille. You should be producing frozen food for the leading fast food chain. You should be answering the phones at these call centers. You should be providing telecommunication services to America's leading cellular companies. You should be sewing lingerie for America's most adored lingerie outlets. You should be sewing those made in the USA tags onto garments. You should be taking reservations for America's top airlines and not for 26 cents an hour either. Oh yeah, that's what non-violent criminals get paid in prison. Yeah, that's right. 16 to 26 cents when you should be doing those same job for 16 to 26 dollars. So you see how it works, right? The convict lease system, the private prison industry invests as much money as it does in media because it needs you to buy into the narrative that the unjust incarceration of blacks who are given sentences up to five times longer than white offenders for the exact same crime is justified. You get what I'm saying? And the more you buy into it, the more you lose your job to non-violent offenders. And remember, this has been going on since 1865. And yes, we got black on black crime, we got white on white crime, Asian on Asian crime, Latino on Latino crime. But think about this. If one out of every four men in your neighborhood, no, 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 wait, wait, let me do it over. Let me do it over. So if one in four, 25% of the male figure in your community were guaranteed to go to prison, and if it had been that way since 1865, and if that were the best ratio that had ever existed since 1865, do you think going to gladiator school and coming back? into the neighborhood could make you more violent. Think about this. Some parents don't send their kids to certain schools because they're worried about their kids being bullied or being picked on and these dynamics can make their kids depressed and it can also make their kids incredibly violent. Don't you think that that environment could have an influence on the way in which people behave when they get out of jail? No? Doesn't cross your mind? It, yes? 
Talk to me. Anyway, that is the covert black history of the USA. I think it's hypocritical to speak of American history without speaking about the prison industrial complex. If you would like to see more content that supports the truth, please click the link and show social media support for my up and coming movie, Prison Logic. Uh huh. Put that link right there. That one. Put that one. No, click. Click this one. I want you to love me. Do you love me? Because I love me like the one above me. Let's not let history repeat itself again and again. Because every time history repeats itself, it ends up putting you out of money. Abolition. Abolition. People are fearful of crime. So whenever one is charged with a crime, a lot of time it doesn't make a difference whether or not this person is innocent or guilty. They feel, some people feel, and I've heard jurors say, well, this individual here, they must have done something. This is a type of mentality that is cultured. I mean, it is, you know, nurtured in, in, in American society. I think while we focus on the condition of confinement, I think the bigger focus is on prison. I think we have to begin to see prison as being a tantamount or equal to slavery. I think people in the United States need to know that uh, the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. Instead, the 13th Amendment, you know, if you read the word and it says slavery and involuntary servitude shall exist on these shores except one who has been duly convicted of a crime. How many people who have been duly convicted of crime but who are actually innocent? Because as long as we have prison, slavery reigns. Stats, prison is a gold mine camp with no buybacks. Nigga, it's a wizard in the system holding all my blacks. It started in 1640, shackles around my ankles. Melanin meant that I can't go to schools or read, cause who's gonna serve my master? Also, the pastor describes all my people last. The sheep who exist to upkeep the land. We feed the economy, creep all the crops, but then feed on it modestly, consciously knowing you're lesser than. And lighter skin means that you're better now. So you in the house taking whips and probably dick Cause well, you a fetish now Meanwhile, I'm grateful for all that I'm giving I'm picking this cotton in rhythm I pray for a lot of the living Escaping is probably a sin And if God ever finds out that I want my freedom Well, damn, then God's gonna call in the rap Two horses with opposite maps Those nooses, they up in the trees and I'm hanging But I'll never fall like my pants Then came the 13th Amendment Written in 1865 It says, slavery is over Accepted, it's paid for doing crime. And then the things that they made illegal are things you associate with people who now education isn't equal and they getting paid enough to eat so we stealing and jugging and shit. We need to be fully equipped. The system, the new slave master brought in to stop us and bullying shit. Cause before we were stealing and jugging, the laws we was breaking was loitering. We go to the bend and we can't pay to find out the jail is who your employer is. This voyage is super intentional. You used to be students in medical. The 
Moors and indigenous blacks were the smartest and honestly truest professionals, literally teaching you about chemicals. My history isn't viewed on a pedestal. Try to tell me only few of my ancestors had anything to offer. If we wasn't strong, you would never bother. If we wasn't awesome, you'd never put all of your resources in just to get to conquer. If we ain't a problem, then why would you want all the youngins who black not to have a father? Cause slavery showed black youth for mad years that whiteness is right. Your mom getting fucked, your dad getting whipped, but white is the light. And sometimes master blesses you for being a good slave and kills you off if you a bad one. So black mothers tell their daughters fuck the master and they tell their sons they can't run. Mama raised the girls independent and she raised the boys out of fear. These days black women representing the struggle that these black boys trying to clear. Man, we have so much work to do. Abolition. 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 My name is Glenn Davis Jr. and I'm from Avondale, Louisiana, which is on the outskirts of New Orleans. You know, I grew up playing Pee Wee League football in this playground, basketball in this gym, baseball in this park. This is my grandma's house. When the detectives came out looking for me for the crime of first degree murder, they came here. And that was August the 18th, 1992. He was 18 years old. They said they wanted to question him. They brought him in one door and took him out the back door. And he didn't come back. The very next day, my firstborn child, she was born. And he needed, I think, like $100,000 or something like that. We put up every house in the family to get him out, plus some cash. 11 months later, we went to trial, and I was convicted by a non-unanimous jury. I wind up doing 14 years in Angola for the crime of second degree murder that I didn't commit. All it took was 10. All it took was 10. My name is Kate, and I'm with the Unanimous Jury Coalition. I'm Brad, and I'm with the Unanimous Jury Coalition. This is Renee. I'm a volunteer with the Unanimous Jury Coalition. Did you know that Louisiana currently has a non-unanimous jury law? They can convict someone of a crime, even if two people on the jury think that they're innocent. Louisiana is the only state that you can go to prison for the rest of your life on a split jury. It was prison for me because I went to prison with a 10-2 verdict. While working in a prison law library, I learned that it was like literally thousands of folks who had 10 to 11 1 verdicts. Are you aware of Amendment Number 2, which requires unanimous juries? You can help change this law by voting yes on Amendment 2 this Tuesday, November 6th. We got less than a week. This is our one shot. We have to seize it because we will never get another opportunity to get this on the ballot to make this happen. I'm from the downtown area, like Six Hort, Orleans, where a lot of crime goes on. So <laughs> and that's where I got that charge and that conviction, possession, with the intent. I was on drugs for 27 years. 
I used to have to decide whether I was going to get high or whether I was going to eat. That's insane. But that was my life. As many things I have been guilty of, I wasn't guilty that time. First time the jury came back, it was seven and five. But there was still seven convinced three of the five to come on their side, and it became ten and two. And it gave me four years. We are going to Tulane University, Loyola University. That's where we headed. I'm ready to roll. You gotta speak up. Because if you don't, they're gonna do what they wanna do. This is the first time I ever fought for anything. I never stand up for myself. It's my first time feeling like I belong to something. I've been having some really good conversations, but I've talked to more people who say the government gonna do what they want anyway. My vote don't count. I feel bad about it because at one time I didn't think I cared. And I want these people to know that their voice matters. Thank you. That's great. Y'all ready? Yes. 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 There was a broad coalition that came together from both left and right. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, they all kind of came together and said, the practice really violates the Bill of Rights. Many people already thought that Louisiana had unanimous jury verdicts and was really appalled to find out the ugly origins of this law. We know that non-unanimous juries are a vestige of Jim Crow, and we know that non-unanimous juries do not keep us safe. They are not reliable, and it's time for them to go. In 1898, there was a constitutional convention. There were 138 white delegates. And when you look at the transcript from this convention, they make their intentions very clear. They did this to violate the 14th Amendment to disenfranchise voters and to abridge their fundamental rights. It's important to remember the context of Louisiana being a huge state for slavery. And when the 13th Amendment took away this enterprise, there was intentional design to figure out how could we still have this workforce to continue to work in the fields. Louisiana has been the prison capital of the world for quite some time. A main contributor to our capital status is non-unanimous juries. At minimum, there were 12 men who were convicted by non-unanimous juries who we know were actually innocent. They were sentenced to life in prison. And life in prison in Louisiana is life in prison. You leave Angola in a pine box, even though a juror said, I think they're innocent. They just wanted somebody, and it just so happened to be us. It's a single eyewitness case. That was it. That was the only evidence. The eyewitness, he was a, a heavy crack user. He had like six convictions, and he had three open arrests. What he did was he swapped those charges for our lives. There were two jurors who did not believe the state's case. These black women grew up in the same neighborhood as where this crime had happened. 
they actually had serious doubts about the reliability of this single eyewitness. We the jury find the defendant, Mr. Glenn Davis, guilty of second degree murder. So say 10 of 12 jurors. As a young boy, my life, my liberty, and my pursuit of happiness, all that shit was taken away from me. In post-conviction, we discovered police documents that the police never turned over to the defense that showed that this eyewitness actually wasn't even at the scene when the crime happened. Sometimes I don't know how to feel about it. My family, they always telling me like, man, you gotta let it go. You know, I have a scar on my soul. How can I let that go? Had this state been a unanimous jury state, the detectives and the district attorney would have looked further into actually finding out who committed the crime. You know, we win this amendment, we get this constitution changed, then no one ever will be affected by this again. This is an amazing night right now. This is bigger than the Super Bowl because that means nothing. This is the last remnant of Jim Crow legislation within Louisiana. Jim Crow has to go, baby. Jim Crow has to go. <laughs> this was a massive turnout. You tonight, ladies and gentlemen, have ended 138 years. In one night, you have fundamentally changed criminal justice in the state of Louisiana. All we need now is people willing to commit to do the work. People in the state of Louisiana are really starting to question this addiction that we have to locking people up. We should be very, very cautious of the way that we handle determining somebody's incarceration, determining someone's liberty. Given that we have this infrastructure now, it really gives us faith that if we work together, that we can actually unite for justice and for fair-mindedness.
Abolition. Abolition. A black American citizen from New York State fled to Canada and has applied for refugee status. Kyle Lydell Canty, 30, says he fears cops at home are targeting him for his race, invoking the deaths of Eric Garner and Michael Brown. He said blacks are being exterminated at an alarming rate in his native land. He continues, they're constantly killing black people. It's documented. The United Nations has condemned America for their police brutality. Canty said he has lived in six states, faced police harassment in each one, and racked up a criminal record. This is a history of false arrest. My name is ruined because of the false arrest, he said. Canty said he crossed the border into Vancouver about two months ago, planning only a short trip before deciding to live there in a homeless shelter while awaiting asylum. Black lives do matter, but what about ours, man? 
Apparently black people's lives matter more than us.